all things are relative. And Vermont, by almost any definition, is in better shape in a lot of ways than much of the country. If you wanted a numerical proof of that, it was simply that fewer Vermonters per capita died of COVID than any place else in America, and by a fairly large margin. And the reason for that, I'm convinced, is that we have higher levels of social trust in Vermont than any place else. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week marks the 10th anniversary broadcast of the Vermont Conversation. I'll have more to say about the backstory of the program in a few weeks when we do a program with highlights from the last decade. But this week, I thought it would be appropriate and enlightening to invite back our very first guest. Bill McKibben joined me for the inaugural broadcast of the Vermont Conversation on January 16, 2013. I'm grateful that Bill has been a regular on this program over the past decade. In many ways, he embodies the range of what we try to do here. As a journalist, he has eloquently chronicled the impact of the climate crisis across the globe and put a human face on what too often is cast as a political or scientific problem. He's the author of some 20 books, including The End of Nature, which was the first book to warn the general public about the climate crisis. He writes regularly for The New Yorker and on Substack at his site, The Crucial Years. His latest book is a memoir, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, a graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. McKibben has not been content to just write about global problems. He's been an endlessly creative and effective activist, organizing, cajoling, and inspiring people to confront power and make the world better. He founded the global grassroots climate campaign 350.org, and he's the recipient of the Gandhi Peace Award and the Right Livelihood Award, known as the Alternative Nobel. He's the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. His latest project is Third Act, which is organizing people over 60 for progressive change. Bill McKibben joins me in this 10th anniversary Vermont conversation to reflect on the last decade and beyond. Bill McKibben, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. It's good as always to be with you. We've done this a number of times, but it's quite remarkable to think that we first did it 10 years ago. Yes, you were my first guest on January 16th, 2013, and uh, you began by congratulating me uh, on this new show, but um, saying that you hoped I lived up to the standard set by my then 13-year-old son, who was a <laughs> sportscaster on WDEV with a much more name recognition than I had. Um, that 13-year-old is now about to graduate college. So I think I'm free and clear, and I hopefully have met those lofty standards. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been an extraordinary pleasure listening for the last decade. And I got to say, I'm glad we've had you because what a decade it has been. It's uh, sort of amazing to think that 10 years ago, you know, Donald Trump was a kind of uh, mediocre real estate developer in New York City and 
Bernie Sanders was still our exclusive property as a, you know, Green Mountain State Senator and uh, a, a lot's happened in that decade that you've uh, paid witness to. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to start. Um, I went back and listened to our first Vermont conversation, and you were talking about a new article you had just done for Rolling Stone, uh, which many people may remember. It was called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And so I went back and reread that article, and in it you highlight, and that article, I should say, became the basis of a roadshow that you put on around the country um, to both raise awareness and to launch a national divestment campaign. But back to the article, which caused a sensation, you highlighted three numbers in that article that should um, cause people to wake up, hopefully not be paralyzed uh, with fear. And those numbers were two degrees Celsius, 565 gigatons, and 2,795 gigatons. Could you remind us what those numbers referred to 10 years ago, and where are we at with each of those now? <laughs> sure. Um, so this was a sort of, the piece was, had the, had the not very dynamic title of global warming's terrifying new math, I think. And it really was an exercise in math, which made it somewhat odd that it became the most viral article, I think, that Rolling Stone has run in their digital era. Um, the two degrees obviously refers to what we what the what we were then aiming at is the the, the hope that we would stop the world somewhere short of uh, two degrees increase in global average temperature. That number was canonized a couple of years later at the Paris Climate Accords when the world's nations pledged to keep global warming below two degrees and as close to 1.5 degrees centigrade as possible. Uh, uh, we'll get back to where we are with those in a minute. Um, um, second number uh, 565 gigatons was about how much the scientists said we could still burn uh, and have some hope of staying below that number and in temperature increase. And the third much larger number, 2,700 and some gigatons, was how much carbon was in the uh, reserves of the big oil and gas and coal companies, the stuff they'd told bankers and shareholders they were planning to um, dig up and set on fire. So a lot has happened in the meantime. The most important is that 10 years have passed and we're 10 years further onto this hotter planet. And so we're seeing things now that would have been unimaginable even a decade ago. Um, you know, we've had temperatures, we, we, the year before last, the temperature in Canada reached 121 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, eight degrees hotter than it had ever been before, uh, probably the hottest it had been since the Pleistocene in Canada. Um, scared the hell out of the climatologists, as did this year's extraordinary heat waves in first South Asia, then Europe, and then most incredibly in China, where it just stayed hot for week upon week after week. There are temperature stations, David, in China, whose 30 top 
readings of all time now all come from 2022. Um, just ungodly um, um, waves of heat and all the other things that have gone with it. You know, 10 years ago, we hadn't yet entered into this era of mass conflagration and fire that now marks every season in the West. We hadn't seen floods quite the quite the match of the one, say, in Pakistan this past August, which was the biggest rainstorm since Noah. Um, and, and so, so that part is very dire. Um, Jim Hansen, the greatest climatologist in the world, predicted yesterday that we'll probably see an El Nino uh, event in the Pacific sometime in the next 18 months. And then when it happens, probably in 2024, the world will go past that 1.5 degree mark for the first time. Um, that's really just disheartening and terrifying. Um, <laughs> second number, how much we have left that we can burn uh, a lot less even than then. Uh, the climatologists tell us that we have to have cut emissions in half now by 2030. Uh, and 2030 is now closer than the Paris Climate Accords are, are in the past, you know, um, so very little time. And the role of the fossil fuel industry, how much they plan to burn, well, they continue to be a rogue and piratical industry uh, uh, determined to maintain their business model at any cost. They've developed uh, specialties in greenwashing over the last decade. Um, but they've also been met by an ever more committed and powerful movement of people standing up to them. So you mentioned that divestment campaign. Uh, we're now at about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel around the world, uh, sort of hatched from the, that article in the roadshow that followed. Um, you know, when we talked in 2013, we'd launched not long before this fight against the Keystone Pipeline, and it became the first big defeat of big oil. Just this past week, you've seen extraordinary activists uh, in um, in Europe uh, uh, sitting down in German coal fields and uh, facing arrest, led in part by one Greta Thunberg, uh, who would have been eight years old, I think, when we talked a decade ago and has emerged as the greatest voice that the world's ever seen on the greatest issue that it's ever faced. So it's been a dramatic decade. The biggest difference probably is that in that 10 years, the price of renewable energy has dropped about 90%. The engineers have really done their job. And it means that we no longer face the same technological and financial obstacles to rapid progress that we did. But we still face the obstacles of vested interest and inertia. And whether or not we can overcome those is a powerfully open question. We should probably talk about the big event of the last year, the passage of this Inflation Reduction Act in the Congress, because it's a direct outgrowth of what I was just mentioning a little while ago, that explosion into public life of Bernie Sanders in 2016. Well, talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you had a little role to play in some elements of it. Uh, you wrote a piece called 
Heat Pumps for Peace. I think it was a year ago, and we talked about it on the Vermont Conversation. It seemed um, pie in the sky uh, when you wrote it, um, and it very quickly was being circulated in the White House and soon enacted uh, into, I believe, the what was it? The, the defense. Uh, remind me what that Defense that, Production Act. Yes. Right. So right. the thing you well, called for actually happened. So yes. Yeah, so let's let's back up since we're since it, ten year anniversary seems a time to talk about the great currents of history. Let's do back up for a minute and talk about 2016 and Bernie Sanders running for president. You and I, I think, were both there the day he announced for president on the shore of Lake Champlain. I gave one of the speeches, nominee, you know, sort of announcing his decision. Um, and truthfully, I, it occurred to me at the time that that might be the biggest crowd he'd draw in the course of his campaign. There were 5,000 people there. He was standing at 2% in the national polls. Within a few weeks, he was standing at 35 or 40% and mounting a deeply serious challenge to Hillary Clinton. The, the reason that that's important above all was that what Bernie did was make clear that there was a large pool of progressive-minded people in America who wanted deep structural systemic change on lots of things and climate was one of the two or three issues that always was at the top of his agenda and at the polling and things that it created um fast forward to 2020 when again bernie came very close to to winning the nomination but uh, uh probably more importantly in the long run those set of ideas had become um fundamental to the democratic party at this point. Uh, the polling data from the 2020 primary showed that climate change was by far the biggest issue for Democratic voters. And so when Joe Biden uh, won the nomination, he had to sit down and deal with Bernie. Uh, and truthfully, the first two years of the Biden administration have basically been uh, the very decent uh, uh, and centrist senator from Delaware uh, trying his best to enact the the policies of the very decent and progressive senator from Vermont. And the biggest case in point is the what finally became the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a direct descendant of the Green New Deal plan hatched by the young people in the Sunrise Movement who had cut their teeth on the fossil fuel divestment movement on college campuses to close this circle once again. When they got out of college, they wanted to keep working, so they formed this new Sunrise Movement and came up with the Green New Deal, which had Bernie's imprimatur, and, and the leader of that uh, 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 movement, um, Varshani Prakash, was uh, 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 named by uh, Bernie to work with the Biden team, um, um, along with AOC over the summer of that of 2020, to come up with the plan that became first the Build Back Better bill, and then eventually, when Joe Manchin had sufficiently gutted it, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. It's still a big deal; it's many hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, spending aimed at making fundamental changes in how we. Uh, power this country, and and it was um, it, it it I mean in a certain way it's the a, a return not to Obama or to 
uh, Clinton era policies, but a return to kind of LBJ era policies. And I just want Vermonters to just be aware and proud of the fact that Bernie played an absolutely pivotal role in, I think, the transformation of, of how this country or large parts of it thinks about itself. Um, Vermont's yep. played some roles too in, you know, things like 350.org and the divestment campaign and all of that too. We, 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 we have much to be proud of, but that Bernie moment was um, um, seminal. For people who don't know that behind the absolute, absolutely banal name Inflation Reduction Act, which I think was intentionally banal, um, were some remarkable things. But remind us some of the highlights. And in part, I ask this because the torrent of, you know, propaganda against it leads people in the way that uh, good propaganda often does to believe things you know fallacies that get put into circulation become reality so ground us in the high points of this well so you know this thing that came out of varshini prakash and her colleagues um was you know had some of its guts removed by mansion he took out the parts the sort of stick parts, the parts that would have forced utilities to change their uh, generating, you know, what the, the fuels that they were using, forced them to switch quickly. That's too bad. That was sort of the heart of things. But they left intact hundreds of billions of dollars in tax credits, in subsidies for clean energy of all kinds, for solar panels and wind turbines and transmission lines, but also for in people's houses in garages, EV chargers, heat pumps, and induction cooktops, the sort of uh, household trinity of appliances that need to change. And by some accounts, uh, you know, potentially there's about $8,000 per American household worth of subsidy there. It's not going to be that simple to kind of access it. They're not going to send you a check about it. And it's a little still sort of working out exactly how it's all going to unfold. But suffice it to say, there's enough money that it should be pushing uh, quickly in the direction of this energy transition that we desperately need. You mentioned that one of the outgrowths of that article a decade ago in Rolling Stone was the launching of the divestment movement, the fossil fuel divestment movement. And you mentioned that we were $40 trillion in. Um, I wonder if you could kind of reflect on the actual impact of that. You know, divestment is often seen as a symbolic protest that can't actually move the needle, that can't... Uh, you know, cause, fight, create financial pressure sure. because, you know, the, criti the critics will just say, well, somebody else will buy those sure. stocks that you're divesting from. But when we're into the realm of trillions, that kind of uh, logic, you know, that says it doesn't do anything no longer works. So tell sure. us what it's done. Well, so it's, it's true that when we began, Naomi Klein and I, who were sort of, you know, dreamed up a lot of it, thought that its major impact would be to, as we put it, take away the social license of these companies. And it's definitely had 
that effect. It became the focus, the way for people all over the country and then all over the world, because this is a very global campaign, to uh, uh, to explain to people what rogue enterprises these fossil fuel companies were. But at a certain point, it got large enough that it also began to profoundly interfere with their access to capital. Happened first in coal, um, uh, you know, when Peabody Coal went bankrupt in 2017, they listed among their reasons the fact that the divestment campaign had made it very hard to raise new capital. Shell Oil said a couple of years ago in its annual report that divestment had become a material risk to its business, uh, which is good because Shell's business is a material risk to life on planet Earth. But and so that continues. One result of all of this is that the fossil fuel industry, big oil, is ever more dependent, not on raising money through equity, but on raising money from bank loans and through uh, corporate bond underwriting by banks, which is why so much of the attention now has turned to working on the banking system. And that's the sort of next huge phase of this. We're gearing up at third act for sort of spearhead this big national day of action on March 21st, three, two, one, two, three for the palindromically inclined, um, when we'll have people uh, inside and outside offices of Chase and City and Wells Fargo and Bank of America all over the country, because these are the biggest lenders left to the fossil fuel industry on earth, and it's time for them to stop. So, uh, you know, nothing ever, um, <laughs> There's never any final victory, just an a, a, a endless a series of fights that, that do more and more and more damage as we go along, and that's the hope. Is there an anecdote that kind of puts um, from the divestment effort that you have heard from inside the fossil fuel industry about the impact that it's had beyond just symbolism? Well, I mean, you, you, you don't even, as I say, we, we're now at the point where there are like legal filings where people are saying, yeah, we're, we're sorry, uh, stockholders, we went bankrupt because, uh, you know, these people were doing these campaigns. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's what, but, but you can tell, I mean, there have been pretty good tells all along of how deeply uh, damaging it was. The fossil fuel industry mounted a very fierce, campaign against it for a very long time. You may recall that at one point, there was a year or so whenever I left my house, there were um, uh, people with video cameras following me wherever I went and posting every, you know, every uh, me sitting in church, me going to the grocery store, whatever, online all the time, all funded by the fossil fuel industry in an effort to kind of intimidate and break up <laughs> campaigns. I, I think they finally gave up out of sheer boredom, but the, um, um, <laughs> or maybe um, they couldn't keep up with you on the ski yeah, trails. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, I mean, it's been very, very, very powerful. You know, when we began, um, Naomi and I were both looking back to a period you remember very strongly. The first time that divestment was a tool, which was in the fight against apartheid in South Africa. And the first person we'd called uh, to say, can we do this was Desmond Tutu, uh, the Archbishop of 
then of South Africa who won the Nobel Prize for largely for his work around divestment and building it. And, and he, in his wonderful high-pitched cackle, said, yes, this is just what we need. Uh, climate change is the human rights issue of our time, the way that, that uh, apartheid was of a generation ago. Please go to work. And he not only gave it his blessing, he gave it his all, among other things, he uh, uh, <laughs> definitely forced King's College London, his alma mater, to divest very quickly from fossil fuel. At this point, more than half the universities in the UK have divested from fossil fuel, including Oxford and Cambridge and Edinburgh, uh, you know, and obviously including uh, most of the prestigious places in this country, uh, uh, and on and on and on. So it's been a um, it's been a pleasure, but if you, it's possible that the single greatest effect was just raising this fantastic generation of activists uh, all around the world, the college kids who worked so hard. The insight was that that we could take the climate debate, and since most people didn't live near a coal mine or an oil well, but they did live near a pot of money, a university endowment, a pension fund, a church fund. We, we could transfer this fight to 10 or 20 or 30,000 locations all at once. And that's just what happened. Everybody else did all the work. I mean, I was the sort of Tom Sawyer pointing at the, you know, whitewashed fence and getting everyone else to do all the work. And they just became just spectacular organizers. And, um, and thank God for it. Bill, one of the iconic photos from uh, your activism uh, in Vermont and beyond is the image of you standing uh, at a gas station in Burlington. I think it was in 2015, the, a lonely figure with a sign <laughs> saying Exxon knew. And you very helpfully republished that on your Substack uh, blog this week. But you were doing it because we have now incontrovertible proof that Exxon knew, and not just knew a little bit, but knew <laughs> with far more precision than yeah. even your colleague, Jim Hansen, who you have dubbed the world's greatest climatologist, um, the accuracy of what Exxon yeah. knew, the precision and the timeline for what <laughs> would happen when takes your breath away. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is one of the truly horrible but important stories of this whole thing. I mean, you know, when, when, when we were writing in 2012 and 2013 about uh, the fossil fuel companies and their business plans and stuff, we knew that they were rogue companies. And that by this point, it was very clear to everyone that their business plans were ruinous. But in 2015, Great reporting from uh, the Pulitzer-winning website Inside Climate News, from the LA Times, from some others, uh, established that, in fact, Exxon and the others had known back in the 1980s, early 1980s, even late 1970s, had had a very good idea of what was going on. Uh, they uncovered archival documents and talked to whistleblowers. Um, uh, Exxon had been the biggest company in the world at that point, and it had a large staff of scientists, and its product was carbon. It's not surprising. They decided to find out what was going on, and they did find out. Uh, uh, and, and, and we now know, as these revelations last week uh, from Naomi Oreskes and her team at Harvard made clear, um, 
they knew everything. Uh, these guys tracked down the particular forecasts, and they'd made dozens and dozens and dozens of them about what the temperature and carbon concentrations would be, and through their own modeling, and they were spot on. Yes, as you said, they were at least as good as the predictions that were coming out of the big government labs at NASA and NOAA. Uh, uh, they were, um, uh, and, and here's the important point, they were believed within Exxon at all. I mean, Exxon in the 1980s sent out a directive to build all their drilling rigs higher because they knew that the sea was going to be rising. They started plotting out just what lots of land they were going to lease in the Arctic once they'd melted it. Uh, so the, <laughs> and at the same time, they launched this massive campaign of disinformation and denial that kept us locked for 30 years in an utterly sterile debate about whether or not global warming was real. A debate that both sides knew what the answer to was at the start, it's just one of them was happy to lie. And it turned out to be the most consequential lie in human history, perhaps, because it robbed us of the one thing we most needed, time. Instead of having 40 years to react to the reality of global warming, we're now gonna have to compress it all into five or six years. Um, if they had done the right thing in the late 1980s, the minimum, it seems to me, that any ethical system would demand, uh, uh, you know, the night that Jim Hansen had testified before Congress, if the CEO of Exxon had just gone on TV and said, you know what, that's what our scientists are finding too. Uh, well, that would have been enough. No one was going to say, oh, Exxon, they're a bunch of climate alarmists. People would have said, yeah, we've got a problem here and we better dig in. Instead, they did just the opposite. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't get paralyzed easily in this work because I've been doing it for a long time. But I will say that sometimes if I allow myself to think about it very much, just the magnitude of that act does kind of paralyze me. Um, it's incomprehensible that human beings would have done that. And yet they did. Mm. Your latest uh, foray into activism and constantly reimagining ways to have an impact has been to organize people of a certain age, uh, I dare say our age, uh, and you've called it third act. Where do you kind of dream up? Um, I mean, it's a very um, original, yes, there are other groups that uh, are uh, have organized among older Americans, but where did you get the idea and, and what's been the results so far of Third Act? Well, yes, the results so far has been remarkable. We're exactly a year old, not a decade, just a year, but it's been amazing. We've got many tens of thousands of volunteers now and they're organized themselves into working groups across the country and also by what it was they did during their working lives. So there's lawyer, third act lawyers and third act educators and, you know, uh, third act faith for retired rabbis and ministers. And, and they've been doing incredible work this past year. Our two focuses are democracy and climate, the, I guess the physical climate and the political climate. And during the elections last year, it was just unbelievably powerful to watch people churning out 
tens of thousands of postcards. We eventually decided that correctly, as it turned out, that Nevada was going to be the linchpin state for control of the Senate. And so we put an awful lot of effort in there. And when CNN covered the eventual successful, very narrow win of Catherine Cortez Masto in that Senate race, the two groups that they uh, cited were the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas and Third Act up in northern Nevada. We convened people from all over the country. Uh, Rebecca Solnit and I were up there doing a lot of speaking and getting people out by the hundreds to knock on doors and things, and it was wonderful. Um, the, the basic premise is that, um, well, I mean, you asked where it came from, where the idea came from. People haven't organized older people for a long time for progressive action, though older people have played a part in all kinds of groups and things. Um, just on the theory that in general, people become more conservative as they age. But my sense was that might no longer be true for this cohort. After all, if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, your first act was in that period of time of great social and economic and political and cultural transformation. Um, and that was the legacy that we helped provide early on and that now is under great assault. I mean, look at what the retrograde Supreme Court went after this past summer. They went after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Gun Control Act of 1968, the Clean Air Act of 1971, and Roe v. Wade of 1973. So, uh, you know, after the things that had formed come as sort of the bulwark of most of our lives, you know. And so I think that's one reason that people are flocking in in such numbers. And good, because there's a lot of <laughs> older people in America, 70 million of us over the age of 60, 10,000 more every day, which is more than the number of people born every day in this country now. Um, not only are there a lot of us, you know, multiply our impact because we all vote. There's no known way to stop old people from voting. <laughs> and, and, and we ended up with most of the resources. 70% uh, of the country's financial assets, fair or not, belong to the uh, boomers and the silent generation compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you want to go after Washington or you want to go after Wall Street, it's good to have some people with hairlines like mine. I confess that the first time it really struck me that this might be possible was about a decade ago. We did that first big round of civil disobedience in Washington to launch the fight against the Keystone Pipeline. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it worked. I wrote the letter asking people to come to Washington to get arrested, and it was successful. It turned into the biggest civil dis disobedience action about anything in this country for a very long time. And one of the things I said in the letter was, I did not think that young people should have to be the cannon fodder here, that they were providing most of the leadership, but that if you were 19, maybe an arrest record was not the best thing for your resume, you know, pointing out that one of the few unmixed blessings of growing older is past a certain point, what the hell are they going to do to you? You know, so it was, we didn't ask people when they got arrested, how old are you? Because that would be rude. But we did cleverly, I think, say who was president when you were born? And the two biggest cohorts were from the FDR and the Truman administrations. That was my sense that it was 
possible to mobilize people of a certain age, and that it was a really good thing to do because the young people who were there got to see their elders acting the way we need elders acting in a working society, and they were mightily relieved by it. And that's been one of the joys of this work the past year at Third Act. And by the way, Third Act Vermont is really rocking and a wonderful group of people. Hmm. Um, um, you know, we're not trying in any way to lead this work. We're trying to back up the remarkable work that young people are doing and show our support and solidarity in all the ways that we can. And, you know, it's fun. Uh, I was in Brooklyn for not long ago for we did this day of marches between all these four banks, City, Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. Um, and, and there were um, a bunch of high school kids there. And they were, because there's always high school kids there, they completely understand this. And they were out in the front of the march because they're somewhat spryer. Um, and, but at the back, there was a big crew of third act people marching under a banner that said, fossils against fossil fuels. Um, so, you know, we're, 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 we're doing what we can and we're doing it in the best spirit that we can muster. You ended last year with uh, an essay talking about how hopeful you were. And I think a lot of people may have found that surprising because um, as you yourself described yourself, you've uh, made a career of bumming people out um, with your truth telling about climate change. Um, why are you hopeful? Well, look, I mean, I'm obviously no Pollyanna about this. I mean, I wrote the very first book about climate change and it had the jovial title, The End of Nature. Um, you know, and, and this every, I'm sad to say that every prediction in it's basically come true in the intervening 33 years. Um, but look, um, you find, you find opportunities when you can. And we are actually at a moment of extraordinary opportunity. The convergence of this big mobilization of people around the world and the remarkable fall in the price of renewable energy has left us in a place where it's possible to imagine for the first time really rapid change. Now, whether it'll come or not, it'll depend on how hard we push <clears throat> and so on. Um, but but it's no longer, there's nothing far-fetched about it. Uh, uh, in fact, it's very clear that 40 years from now, we'll run the world on clean energy because it's cheap. Uh, if it takes us 40 years to get there, it'll be a broken world that we run on clean energy. Our job is to make it happen in 10 years, you know, but it's, it's no longer, there's nothing, um, um, there's nothing obscure or even all that complex about it, it just requires immense amounts of effort now. Back to the hope and what you see around you beyond climate change. I mean, people, um, you know, there was an interesting, I, I, last week I interviewed Amanda Ripley, mm. who writes a column, uh, uh, well, in the Washington Post and elsewhere. But one of the things she talked about was having put herself on a news diet, that here she was a journalist who was confessing that she couldn't really take a mm. full dose of the news every day. And I think a <laughs> lot of people feel that way. Um, 
I, I am much too hooked. I am a news junkie, so I cannot quit it. Um, but burnout and just people getting depressed by some of the things around them, the backsliding we see on basic civil liberties in our own country. Um, what yeah. gives you hope? Well, I mean, look, I was in the airport in Cairo en route to the um, to the climate conference in Sharm El Sheikh in November um, in this deserted uh, airport uh, early in the morning, hunched over my phone, looking at the election results coming in from the midterms. And I'd tried to psychologically prepare myself for what everyone assured us was coming, this red tsunami. Um, and when it didn't materialize, I realized how proud I was of Americans at some level. Um, um, you know, democracy lived to fight another day. And it, I think it was, I think it's because the, some of the spell is beginning to break maybe. This may be wishful thinking and we'll find out as time goes on. But it strikes me that there are fewer fewer people willing to um, just buy the endless nonsense of, of uh, the right wing, that they're beginning to look a little pathetic, whether it's Elon Musk, uh, you know, or, or whatever. It's not that they're not powerful and they don't have plenty of followers, but by and large, more people than not, um, it feels to me like there's people standing up for common sense, uh, for the idea that science is is a useful tool, uh, that, you know, medicine is, a, is, was a, that vaccines were a good development of the 20th century, that, you, you, you know, um, and, and yes, we're living a country that still is riven, where there's people constantly trying to foment uh, uh, unpleasantness at all times. Um, um, but I, that election result was kind of a quiet testimony to the quiet sanity of a fair number of people in this country. So one well, takes hope where one can find it. I'm with you on uh, being reassured by the election result, but that's only if I ignore the fact that um, people like Carrie Lake and other, you know, delusional um, candidates who are claiming, you know, election victories where they lost, were getting 47 and 49 yeah, yeah, yeah. percent of the vote. Hey, so look, the Inflation Reduction Act, the climate bill passed on a 50-50 vote with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. Now, look, we're not out of the woods. There's no uh, <laughs> there's no reason to set off fireworks. But, but you know, I mean, I, I think all of us definitely entertained the possibility that our country was immediately going to slide into some kind of something that looked a lot like fascism. Um, Trump scared me in ways that Trump and the support that he found scared me in ways that I, I that I've not been scared in my whole life. And I part of that fear was the feeling that I did not recognize my country, a country I've always loved. And um, and 
I think that there's a majority of people, not an overwhelming majority, who may be willing to opt for a certain kind of quiet normalcy and decency and, and, and just tackling the problems that are ahead of us. Maybe not. We're definitely going to have to fight like hell for a few elections to come to make sure that this uh, fever is out of our system. And, you know, the fact that we, the fact that we had thousands of Americans invading the nation's capital and killing police officers to stop the counting of votes is a black mark and a shame that will never, its stain will never leave us. Uh, but it's one of the reasons we fight so hard at places like Third Act to just uphold the idea that we're better than that. You recently gave a nice shout out in an article in The New Yorker to the Vermont media, um, including a nice mention of WDEV and Vermont Conversation and Vermont Digger. So thank you for that, uh, but also of Seven Days, Vermont Public. Um, what is it you think the rest of the country can learn from Vermont? In well, I mean, look, everything can be overstated. And, and since we're close to home, it's easy for us to see the weaknesses, defects, flaws uh, uh, in Vermont, of which there are many, many uh, and things we need desperately to pay attention to. But all things are relative. And Vermont, by almost any definition, is in better shape in a lot of ways than much of the country. If you wanted a numerical proof of that, it was simply that fewer Vermonters per capita died of COVID than any place else in America and by a fairly large margin. And the reason for that, I'm convinced, is that we have higher levels of social trust in Vermont than any place else. They're not overwhelming. <laughs> They're not what they used to be, uh, whatever, but compared with the rest of America, by every statistical measure and survey data and things we come up with, Vermonters are more inclined to trust each other and feel a kind of sense of social solidarity, which during COVID manifested in the, you know, pretty much straightforward willingness to like, okay, if it's helpful to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask, you know. Um, um, and, and it manifests in other ways too. Um, you know, we continue to try and do what's right on a number of things. We don't get there as fast as we should. And there's a, obviously a, uh, a strong and understandable conservative, sort of old school conservative streak that, you know, results in the reelection of Phil Scott every two years for as long as he wishes to be reelected. Um, 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 you know, uh, uh, I, but I, I do think that part of that is the role that the media manages to play here. Um, we have more intact media than most places. Yes, we lost for the most part our big dailies. The Burlington Free Press is a non-entity essentially now instead of the flagship paper in our biggest city. Um, but we do have things that have gone some way to replace it, Vermont Digger being a good example. And we also have the leftover superstructure of a more localized journalism. 
I think WDEV, which I've written about at some length, uh, is an absolute model, one of the few remaining <laughs> examples of uh, journalism done in, with, with an entire community in mind. And the same can be said for our remaining weekly papers. I wrote a lot about the Addy Indy, uh, the Addison Independent, in that uh, piece in The New Yorker, because it is a huge blessing for our corner of the state that we have a reliable, uh, accurate, uh, well-put-together, beautiful account of our lives delivered every Thursday. Um, and and I, I very much hope we can keep all these institutions alive and kicking because I think that they allow us to remain um, to to remain in conversation with each other to use your uh, to use your phrase and I, I'll note that one interesting thing that happened at the start of the um, pandemic was that both Vermont Digger and Seven Days disabled the comments columns that followed articles, which sounds like a small thing, but I actually think it turned out to be a huge saving grace. It's a harder state to be a sorehead in uh, than most uh, right now. Um, there's fewer outlets for your, I mean, sure, you can go on Facebook and rant and plenty of people do, and it sometimes leads to trouble, especially when you know people are resisting changing the names of the high school team, but uh, you know, for the most part, um, we managed to carry on um, um, a rational conversation here. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you for this and for a decade of Vermont conversations <laughs> and for kicking us off 10 years ago. And uh, I wonder what we will be talking about uh, in 10 years from now on the Vermont well, conversation. Who knows? First, let's hope that we're still here talking 10 <laughs> years from now. But second, let me just say, I'm not sure that people quite understand how much work you put in to make this happen every week. And just know from a large number of us, we are could not be more grateful for what you do. Um, and it's an enormous gift to, that you take your skills and devote them to, the, to this work every single week. Many, many, many thanks. Well, thank you, Bill. And here's to many more Vermont conversations.